turn to 2 Samuel as we continue our study in what in the Hebrew Bible originally is just one book. First and Second Samuel comprise one book. It's a book that begins with a poem, if you will, and ends in the end of Second Samuel with David's poem, with his pouring of praise out to the Lord. Um, just just to remind ourselves kind of how these two sections bookend, turn to First Samuel chapter 1. I'm not going to read, uh, excuse me, First Samuel 2, Hannah's Prayer. Uh, you remember it begins with this, this beautiful prayer from this barren woman who just pours her heart out to the Lord. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She goes on to declare that there's none like the Lord. And so our proud and our arrogance should be put in the light of that. She says in verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And she goes on then to just lay out this picture of reversals, how God is going to reverse what man and the world's system will do. David ends Second Samuel with just recounting how God has been faithful to do that. If you want to turn over to Second Samuel chapter 22 and just see the end there. David's song of deliverance, and this is a testimony to his whole life. In 2 Samuel 22, he says there in verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am safe from my enemies. Yes, you hear those words throughout the Psalms because David recounts that in those Psalms, in those songs that he wrote. His last words that are recorded for us here in Second Samuel over in chapter 23, he says this. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like a sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear and they are utterly consumed with fire. So David just ends with this note of how God is positively moving and working on behalf of his king, on behalf of his anointed. In the middle of this, so if we were to take First and Second Samuel and make them into one book, as it is in the Hebrew Bible, it begins with a poem and ends with this beautiful poem of praise. And in the middle is another one. And it's a lamentation, it's a lament that, kind of catches, of all, catches us off guard. It, it kind of surprises us with, with what happens. So in First Samuel, excuse me, in Second Samuel chapter 1, David gets news of what we've already seen unfold in chapter 31 of First Samuel, where Saul dies, his sons die, and they die there at the hands of, of the Philistines. And in this passage, David gets news of that, and he gets it from, of all people, an Amalekite. Now, we will see that this Amalekite is conniving. He's lying. He's trying to position himself into favor for this new king. And yet we see David respond to him in a way that may shock us, may surprise us. 
And then we hear him pour his heart out in, in grief over not just Jonathan, his closest friend, but over Saul, who has been his fiercest enemy. And all that unfolds here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, the death of Saul, as we have seen, was a necessary part of God's plan, right? Even, even the death of Jonathan, if you will, is a part of God's plan, as those who might in some way step up to take claim of the throne that is David's are removed. And yet, even though it's a part of God's purposes and plans, David grieves, and his heart is broken. And while this is not a, a, a how-to book on grief, we can learn from it. There's something that we can learn from it. And David sees even the life of Saul, his enemy, as one that is to be honored, mourned, and remembered. Not just by himself personally, but by the people that will come behind him. And so this is that, that lamentation. This is how he, he pours it out. And, and what we hear is, in some way, is just... Well, here, what we'll hear, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, is, is much of what we as pastors do when we're called to do funerals. I've always said, I've probably said it a thousand times, I'm not going to stand up here and lie about somebody. And as long as it takes, I'm going to think of something good. <laughs> and, and in some ways, there's always something good because that person, regardless of who she or he is, is an image bearer of God. And their life is worth being honored in that sense, regardless, regardless of what circumstances may surround that life. And David, David models that for us. So, let's read the first portion of this. Follow along with me as I read. We'll go for the first ten verses first. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David... He fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his Son Jonathan are dead. And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Wow, what do we do with that? So we have just read an account in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that is different. We saw a parallel account last week in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 that was different. So do we have two different accounts here, two different accounts of what went on? Well, yes, we do. Well, how do we know what to believe? How do we know which one is accurate? 
I really appreciate what um, one commentator that I've been using throughout this series, Ralph Davis. Ralph is a is a Presbyterian pastor, and he's uh, pastoring in South Carolina. He's got a, kind of got a southern bent to a lot of what he says, and I and I appreciate that. He says in, in his commentary, "Do we have two accounts? Not really. We have the narrator's description of what happened in First Samuel 31, and we have the Amalekite story of what happened in Second Samuel 1. The solution is simple." The Amalekite lied. Have you ever had a choice? If you ever have a choice, he says, between the narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. He says, have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? Well, in some sense, that's very true. This is an inspired account in that it is a part of God's word. But it was an inspired account on the part of the narrator in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that gave us the account of what happened, as it was in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And here, the narrator gives us an inspired account of a lie. Tells us what happened through this Amalekite, or what he says happened, rather. And this Amalekite come, and, and he has a story. And his story, in some sense, has some credibility to it because, well, just of the circumstances. There are all kinds of people involved in the chaos of a battle. And I have no doubt that Saul was probably leaning on his spear because Saul is constantly leaning on that spear. That's something that's been with him throughout his life. And so this Amalekite then gives us this account that Saul is wounded grievously, that he's going to die, the Amalekite says. And he called on me just to give a mercy killing there, just to kind of do the coup de grace. And I knew he wouldn't live, so I, I did that for him. And he seems to have proof. Here's the crown, and here's the, the amulet, the arm bracelet that he wore that were symbols of his, of his kingship. But there's a background with the Amalekites here that is kind of interesting, ironic, at, at least ironic. Right, because the previous night, well, three nights now, four nights before, Saul had heard that because of his lack of obedience toward the Amalekites from what God had commanded him to do, he would lose his throne. He'd been given specific command what to do to the Amalekites and their king, and he did not do it, so his throne was taken from him because he disregarded God and and, and was disobedient to his word. So the Amalekites, in one sense, had cost Saul his throne in that he did not do what God had told him to do. And the Amalekites have been at the center of this account now for a long time. While David was defeating the Amalekites and plundering them, this Amalekite is plundering Saul. Because I think these things were going on at the same time. And so David now, three days later, gets this account from him. And it's just amazing here. Saul has lost his crown because of his disobedience. And now he's lost his crown to this Amalekite who comes and gives it to David as as some kind of gift, hoping to earn his favor. He's just he's just trying to do exactly probably was trying to do with Saul. Who's ever close to power. Get me close to him that I can benefit from that relationship. So in this case, one commentator pointed out that this is the third time that the Amalekites have helped bring the kingdom to David. It's interesting to look at it that way. 
The first time was because of David's, because, excuse me, because of Saul's sin with the Amalekites. He lost the kingdom because he would not be obedient there. And, and now he's, he's, the Amalekites have literally brought the crown to David and presented it to him. So here's this story. And notice what happens next. The sequence is, some, some commentators point out that the sequence is probably out of order, and sometimes in narratives we get that. Like, should the account go straight from verse 10 down to verse 13, where David turns his attention, or is David's grief, which comes next, we'll take it in order as it's given for us in the text. There's this misrepresentation of what actually happened on the mountain from this Amalekite, and it's calculated. But then there is a heartfelt expression of grief. I'm sure it surprised the Amalekite, and it might surprise us. David took hold of his clothes, in verse 11, and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. I'm sure it surprised the Amalekite. David's sorrow is multifaceted here, as is the sorrow of his men. His first grief, the first person mentioned, is, is grief for Saul. And that is shocking at so many different levels. Then he grieves for Jonathan. And, and, and we can understand that, and we'll see that more in his lament. But then his sorrow is for the people of God as a whole. They grieved for the, for the people of the Lord, and I believe there it's, it's, it may be referring to the, the army that has perished with Saul and Jonathan and his brothers. That they're grieving for the casualties of that conflict on that mountain. But the grief goes beyond that because not only has the king fallen and his sons fallen and the army fallen, but in that picture, Israel, the people of God, are in disarray. They are in bad shape. And there's grief over that. And so there's, 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 there's multi-levels of grief here. And what's amazing of this is that it was out of pure jealousy, remember? Pure hatred at times on Saul's part. Spite, ungodliness, impatience, all of those were factors in the fact that Saul did everything he could to kill David. He did everything he could to kill him, to destroy his life. And honestly, he took the best years of his life as David's roaming around in the wilderness, fleeing for his life. Saul did that to David. And here's David in the face of the death of that unrepentant enemy who has made his life miserable for the last several years, weeping. It's not politically motivated. It's a broken heart. Granted, it, it, it may be received well by the people who see it. But I love what one person wrote about this. The contrast here powerfully demonstrates that our hatred, our bitterness, and our unforgiveness are not imposed on us. They are chosen. Bitterness is a choice. And David chose not to be bitter. And we see that in his grief. Now possibly, David 
if the order here is, is in some way out of, you know, maybe not quite the way it happened, David still sees this for the significance of what it is. He hears this news and it is life changing. Right? The one who has stood in the way of David taking the throne is gone. Literally, the throne, the crown has just been handed to him. And yet David's heart and his words and his actions in no way point us to David. They in no way point us to how he might could have taken this in a positive light. There's no thought on David's part of himself here. It's of the loss. It's of the implications of that loss. What the picture of that loss actually demonstrates. So he grieves. Then in verse 13, we see not only was this a calculated misrepresentation on the part of the Amalekite, it was a bad miscalculation. He, he totally misunderstood who David was and how David might respond. In verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? So the first, where do you come from was like, where have you been? Okay. This next, where do you come from, is like, who, who are you again? Where, where, where are you from? He says, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, I'm not sure whether David said, Your blood be on your head before he was executed, or whether he stood over his body and said it. But either way, the declaration is there. Now, this is, this is not an easy picture before us here. And David may have even resumed this questioning because it says that David and his men fasted until evening. So I'm not sure if this took place that night late or early the next morning. It, it doesn't lay that out for us. Maybe David's had some time to think on this. It, it just doesn't tell us that. This is not, though, a rash, just flying off the handle kind of action on David's part. And let me tell you why I say that. David asked him, where do you come from? And in that answer is given to us an answer that should show us that this man stood accountable culturally and nationally under the law of Israel. He says, I am a sojourner, meaning, excuse me, I'm the son of a sojourner, meaning that under the law of the land at that time, under Old Testament law, Someone who was not part of the Jewish nation could come and live with the Jewish nation as a sojourner. He's a legal alien, if you will. He is there by permission. And as such, he may or may not have been in line to receive all of the benefits of citizenship, but he was under the law of citizenship. He was under the law of Israel. And because he was a sojourner, or the son of a sojourner, because this particular Malachite had been raised in Israel, it seems to tell us, then he should have known what to do and what not to do. 
And that's where David calls him to account. He calls him to account on a legal basis and in some sense on a cultural basis. So what is it that's going on here? David takes the life of this man in righteous judgment for something that we see from the narrative he didn't do. David didn't know he had not done it. We know he had not done it. Yet we have to look at this from that whole picture of what's going on in this scene, what's going on in this whole narrative. Indeed, what's going on biblically throughout the whole picture of the word and what we have going on here. So while David did not, in fact, know that he had not killed Saul, he had just said he did. He had just claimed it. And the thought of claiming it, he thought he would gain favor with the king. How badly mistaken he was. So he didn't understand the culture. He didn't understand David. He did not understand David's righteousness and the basis for that righteousness. And honestly, I was struggling with what this meant. I've, I've, I've been working on this now for a couple of weeks and just looking through that and thinking, what, what exactly is going on here? And I was listening to a podcast earlier this week that I listen to every week and one that I would highly recommend to you, put out by Nine Marks called Bible Talk. And in this, in this podcast, they're actually working their way through First and Second Samuel. Now, they are several chapters behind me. So it's no help to me when it comes to preparing the messages. Although this week I was listening to it, and they were back studying the account that happened earlier in 1 Samuel in chapter 24. Do you remember when David was hiding in the cave and Saul came in to relieve himself? And David had the opportunity to take his life and he didn't? And as Saul leaves, David follows him out of the cave and calls to him. And this is what he said to him as he came out of the cave. It says in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 8, Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to the king, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? In verse 10 it says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, now listen to this, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. In verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. And he goes on then to, to end that little conversation. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So Jim Hamilton points out something that I think is profound. I think it's true and it's very helpful. For us to understand what's going on in David's heart and mind in this account. That is a patriarchal society. David understands, honors, and submits himself to his father Jesse. That was why he'd gone to the field where Goliath was in the first place. Remember that? And the patriarchal picture of the, the place of honor and leadership for that father carries over into a national sense as well. Because the king is seen as the father of the country. With that in mind, God's commandment that we are to honor our father and our mother, that the days may be long for us in the land. With that commandment in mind and with the implication and understanding that that moral law carries over into civil law as well, 
And with the understanding from the Old Testament Deuteronomy law that that son or daughter who speaks out in such a way or strikes their father is deserving of capital punishment. That just makes perfect sense as we see this severe penalty imposed on this Amalekite. Because in every way he has struck the father of Israel. And if he did not do it, actually, he did it in his heart and in his mind. And David doesn't understand that. But still, it has been done. And so the, the sentence is carried out. And his status as a, as, a, as a privileged, if you will, his status as a sojourner, the son of a sojourner, should have made him aware of this. If, even if it's not a spoken law that you do not strike the Lord's anointed, that's the principle of which David has lived, Right? He has not struck Saul either physically or verbally. He's never spoken ill against Saul publicly. And so that principle has carried itself out. And he should have known better. And it cost him dearly. Just a kind of a side point of application here. This Amalekite did not understand the righteousness of David or the basis of that righteousness. And David, remember, is pointing us to his greater son who will come, right? The Lord Jesus. And it says of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9 that the increase of a government and of his peace, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 9, that this one to come will establish it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. And it will be the zeal, the enthusiasm of the Lord that accomplishes this. We see the zeal and enthusiasm of David's righteousness that pales in comparison to his greater son who will come. And his zeal and his righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's this picture of this servant who would come who's anointed, it says, with this sevenfold spirit. And it says of the spirit who will rest upon Jesus to come. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And how he's going to judge with righteousness. That's the Jesus that will come. And that's the Jesus that's pictured in David's response to this. But then we have this lamentation. And I'm I'm tempted to wait, but I want us to look at this. Let's just go ahead and, and look at this. Follow along with me as I read in verse 17. David lamented with his lamentation. Excuse me. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul. And Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. And therefore it is written in the book of Jashar. So the book of Jashar is referenced also earlier in the book of where Joshua tells the people to refer to the book of Jashar. And it's, it's not an inspired writing. It's not a part of the Bible, if you will. In some way, it's some kind of collection, some anthology, if you will, of, of Israel heroes and those who've accomplished great things. And David laments personally. He laments nationally. He wants this to be written down. He wants it to be read. He wants it to be taught. And he wants it to be remembered. So that's what this lament is that follows. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. 
You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lay slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. We don't do a good job of handling death. We do not do a good job of handling death, especially here in the United States. I've thought, I've read a lot about this over the last month or so. Here in the U.S., in our culture, we have isolated death and we've managed to institutionalize it. We've separated it out of real life, at least we think. And we've inoculated ourselves to the to the reality of it. I think to the mystery of it. I think to the weightiness of it. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago about how we as Americans respond to death. This is what the author of that particular article said. In fact, they said death in the U.S. is complicated. (laughs) Self-defined by youthfulness, longevity, positivity, and personal and professional triumph, we as Americans struggle to accept and openly talk about mortality because it runs counter to our core cultural values. In the U.S., death equates limitation. So making grief and conversation around death is difficult, hard topic to broach. Here's what one person said. Kathy Kahn is a professor at Baylor University. She was a contributor to this particular article I read. She says there's a big problem in the United States with denial of death. As a culture, Americans deny everyday death, while at the same time, she says, turning it into a spectacle of entertainment on the news, in video games, and on TV shows. On one level, we're talking about death on the all, we're talking about death all the time, she says. But on another, we don't talk about it as it's really experienced in real life. John Woodhouse said in his commentary on this, death is complicated. And although God has given us all the answers we need, we do not have all the answers we would like. I picked up a little book that's on my bookshelf this week by C.S. Lewis. I'd not read it in a long time. A little book he wrote called A Grief Observed. It's simply a record of little journal entries that he wrote. Really, he's just pouring out his heart and his mind. It's raw in places. It's difficult to read in places, knowing C.S. Lewis and knowing his faith. But it's recorded in this little book. You can read it in 30 or 45 minutes. When he's asking questions of God about the death of his wife, here's what he said. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer but rather a special sort of no answer. It's not a locked door. It's more like a silent 
not uncompassionate gaze. It's as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but in waving the question. It's like, peace child, you cannot understand. He goes on to say, can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Lewis says, quite easily, I should think. How many hours are there in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half of our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. We want answers. And the Bible gives us answers, but it's not always all the answers that we'd like, right? And so a lament helps us get those answers. A lament like this is just a a written expression of grief. It's a written expression of grief in this sense that is not only written, but read. It's to be reread, learned, and repeated. So as I said at the beginning, this isn't a how-to session on grief, but let me ask you this. Is the level of our grief not equated to the level of our love? There's a direct parallel there. The depth of our grief is related to the depth of our love. Which makes this all the more astounding to read it coming from David after the death of Saul. And so put up that chiasm for me there, John. We've used this phrase before. It's a literary tool in the Hebrew that helps us understand how to. And if you're reading a passage like this and you're reading it as carefully and closely as we should, you should notice that it begins in verse 19, how the mighty have fallen. And you should notice at the end in verse 27 that it ends with how the mighty have fallen. And you should see that that's stated in the middle of it there, or at least toward the end of it there. So in a chiasm, remember, we begin and end with a common point or a similar point of reference. It works to another level to parallel points of reference. And then it gets to the center, which is really the main point, the main focus. And that's the center here with this lament on the part of David that we come to here in verses 22 and 23 and in verse 21. But let's let's just kind of look at it and think about it for a second, just in a structural sense. And I'll follow that. He says at the beginning of this, your glory, Israel, is slain on high places, how the mighty have fallen. In verse 27, he says how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. The word for glory there in verse 19 is not the word in Greek cathode or in Hebrew cathode speaking of the glory of God. That's not the same word. Here it's translated in some places as speed, as being swift. It's used to describe a gazelle. So what, what David is saying here in one sense is that this picture of Israel's speed, Israel pictures beauty, if you will, of, of their being so swift, that lies fallen on the mountaintop. In verse 27, he says, not only have the mighty have fallen, but the weapons of war have perished. And what he says there is not only were Saul and Jonathan mighty warriors, but they were in, in essence a weapon in the hands of God to be used on behalf of his people. And so not just their sword has fallen, but they, as the sword, if you will, of Israel, have fallen. It's a picture of how massive this tragedy is at a national level. But notice next the response that's called for here. 
verse 20 and 21, kind of as I've been thinking through this and kind of meditating on this verses, it's David's way of saying, no, things will never get back to normal after a death. It's a new normal, but it's not back to the way it was, nor should it be. Here he says, there should be no joy among the people. And here he's talking specifically about the enemies, Gath, Ashkelon, the Philistines, the uncircumcised. That's the enemy. That's the enemy who has taken the life of Saul and Jonathan on the hill. And he's saying, we don't want this to be a point of celebration among them. People should not take joy in what has happened here. And then he says, the place should also mourn. The mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, no rain, no offerings, nothing growing that can be offered back up to God. Let it never be normal again in this place and among these people. Because a tragedy has taken place. And when he says the, the, the shield lies not anointed, the, the, Saul, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, the custom of the day, the shields that the warriors used were leather. And they were anointed with oil to keep them pliable, keep them useful. But the shield is also, is it not a picture of the king himself? And did not David later on in the Psalms say that the Lord is a shield? Well, that national shield is not anointed. It lies bloody and dirty on the side of the mountain. It's tragedy. And, not, and, and then the contrast to that is down there for the women of Israel. You daughters of Israel, you should weep over Saul. Because in all of his faults... You did pretty well under his leadership. There was luxury. There was comfort in some level. David is remembering the good things that happened under the reign of Saul. And he wants the people of Israel to weep for him as they should. But then it comes to this center section. In verse 22, these warriors were effective. The blood of the slain and the fat of the mighty... The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul was not empty. So there, Jonathan's bow and the sword of Saul were covered with the blood of their enemies. They were able warriors. We've seen that in Jonathan's life. And even in spite of Saul's failures on the battlefield, and they were many, he was good at it. And that good is remembered by David. And then in verse 23... Words that we would not, given the whole record, equate to Saul, beloved and lovely. And knowing what we know about David and Jonathan's, about Jonathan and Saul's conflict, if you will, or the fact that Jonathan had sided with David, had a covenant with David, but Jonathan never broke relationship with his father over it. He died with his dad in the battlefield. And David remembers that. In life and death, they were not divided. They were swift like eagles and strong like lions. And there in verse 22 and 23, we see that Hannah was right. Remember what Hannah said back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel? The bows of the mighty are broken. Yes, they are. And here they lay broken on the hillside. And so David remembers Saul and Jonathan in 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 a good light. And he, and he sets aside all the bad, and there was a lot of it that happened. And, and he remembers them positively in this. All of this is a picture of just how David's heart is free from bitterness. 
how David sees things with a big picture. The image of God in these men, the relationship that was so sacred and so close. I love the fact that there at the end, without disparaging Saul, okay, never speaking ill against Saul, he ends with the emphasis on Jonathan and with his love for Jonathan. I believe he's talking about Jonathan as the gazelle, in fact, who was slain in high places because the wording is the same. He says the glory or the gazelle is slain on high places. And here he says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. And this personal grief at the death of Jonathan, I'm distressed, my brother Jonathan. You were pleasant to me. Your love was extraordinary to me, surpassing the love of a woman. And we've talked about this. Jonathan covered this. JT, it's easy to get those two mixed up, right? JT preached on this. That unfortunately in our sexualized culture, we have a hard time understanding what real depth of love is between men. And David and Jonathan is a picture of that. And he grieved it. He grieved it. When my mom and dad died, first mom and then dad, I felt it was important for me not just to grieve but to write it down. At first, not even out of a sense of responsibility, but just personal healing, personal catharsis, just to write some things down. And so I did it first for mom. Felt like it ought to be shared at her funeral, and I couldn't do it, so JT did it for me. I did it at dad's service too. Now, in that case, I shared it myself, but I did it focusing right on the piece of paper and never looking at the people at all because that's sometimes the only way you can do it. I often ask family members to share at funerals, and I always ask them to write it down. Always write it down. Not just for the sake of the presentation. It'll be better if you write it down, but for the sake of your own heart. It's just good to get it on paper. It's good to think about it. Now, when I shared about mom and dad, I did not share a blow-by-blow account of every fight me and mama had. I didn't. And I didn't share blow-by-blow those times when dad and I butted heads. That wasn't the point. And I have done funerals for people where it took me a while to figure out what to say. But it was always a focus on what could be said that could honor What good could be remembered? And that's what we have in David's lament here. It's not a balanced picture. And laments should not always be that. You can put that in your personal journal. But that's not necessarily what needs to be put out to bring healing to you and to other people who may hear it and read it. And that's what that's what David does here. He remembers the good that is lost. And that's why he's grieving. And that's what he does in this lament. And it's just a powerful testimony to there to to how we handle loss. I think it's a powerful testimony sometimes to how poorly we handle loss. How we unfortunately, even within the body of Christ, can be seen as celebrating the death of a fellow image bearer. Because they might not share our views or share our tribe or share our position or share our color or share our faith. That's inappropriate. And I think David is a picture of that for us. I think David is also a picture of that for us of of just how we begin to work through some of these things. So 
let me, let me just give you three points of application for the whole passage, and then I'll close with that last one, okay? Going back to the Amalekite, it's pretty straightforward. How is it that we do not fear? Here's what I mean by that. How is it that the, the, the writer of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. One of the reasons we act so stupidly is because we do not fear God as we should. One of the reasons for our outburst and our response and the way we look at each other and respond to each other. I remember when we first in 1 Samuel looked at David using this phrase of God's anointed. And an application I made there was that as brothers and sisters in Christ, each of us are anointed with the Holy Spirit. Every brother and sister in Christ is anointed. How is it that we do not fear God enough to not raise our voices, raise our hands, raise our post? against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How is it that we do not fear? There is restraining, refining power in godly fear. And his question to to the Amalekite is one for us too. We just need to keep that fear of God before our eyes. Recognizing in that the sovereign hand of God, the sovereign power of God, the purposes of God. That God puts government authorities over us according to his sovereign plans and purposes. And out of fear of the Lord, we need to honor them as we should, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. How is it that we do not fear? Secondly, in regard to this first section, ultimately no sin is hidden. (laughs) No sin is hidden. In Luke chapter 12, I'll just read this to you. Jesus brings this out. He brings it out pretty clearly as he's um, sharing this, sharing this parable. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Ultimately, no sin is hidden, and all sin is costly. And this illustrates that for us. I think that's an application of it. And then finally, with David's lament, this application, you have it in your notes there. Through Christ our risen Lord, our grief, it is good, and it is gracious, and it should be hope-filled. I'm going to quote Ralph Davis one more time, and I love what he said here. The sorrows and wounds God's people receive from their losses are not miraculously healed with time. They're not miraculously healed, he says, after a short time of emotional catharsis. And sometimes in the church there is such an impatience with grief. Why isn't Alan over Carol's death? Or Connie over Tom's, since it's been so long? But the lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep, it's ongoing, and it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief in words that convey our anguish and images that picture our despair, in written prayers that verbalize our despondency. Davis asked the question, why should God's people be shoddy with their grief? Scriptures give us a way to work through that grief. Write it out. 
Pray it out and then put it at the feet of Jesus. And I believe that's what David does here. Because as we lament, as we grieve, as we grieve faithfully, as we grieve biblically, as we grieve in a gospel sense, we look to Jesus. Right? Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Jesus who regularly made a habit of of interrupting every funeral that he was near. And doing so with life. We take it and lay it at the feet of Jesus, who is a man of sorrows and what? Acquainted with grief. We lay it at the feet of Jesus, who one day will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords and wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because the former things have passed away. And what Jesus has secured for us, church, is the absolute reversal of Genesis 3, right? That's what he's secured for us. The curse is vanished. And we will gather around the throne and lament will be no more. But until then, death still has a sting. But that sting is removed through the gospel hope we have in Christ. That's why we have grief share. That's why you need to pray for that ministry. That apart from the gospel, apart from a biblical understanding of life and death and resurrection, apart from an understanding of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension and coming return of Jesus, we don't have a prayer when it comes to handling grief and handling death as we should. But in light of that, we grieve but not as those who have no hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this account today. We thank you for showing us how costly sin can be. Thank you for showing us the swift, righteous hand of our Lord Jesus. And thank you for showing us the soft, hope-filled heart of Christ. Father, I pray today that if anyone has never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they would turn from their sin and trust in Him today. That, God, the weight of their sin and their guilt would be taken away by our champion, the Lord Jesus. And they would trust in Him. Father, I pray for the gift of repentance and insight into our own souls by Your Holy Spirit so that we can see where we have failed to live in the proper fear of You. We've prayed to acknowledge Lord, the worth and value of fellow human beings. God, grant us repentance in that. Restore to us, us, Lord, not just the joy of your salvation, but the, the joy of your image in fellow human beings. That we would esteem and love and care for them as we should. And God, finally, thank you that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the grave. And one day he will call us all out like he did Lazarus. And we thank you for that. And there will be blessed reunions and there will be joy. But at the heart of that joy, Lord, we'll be seeing you. I thank you for that. And we thank you for that today in Jesus' name. Amen.